Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. And today I can't wait to talk to Dr. Jacob Bloomfield about Drag, a British History, published by the University of California Press in 2023. Drag, a British History is a groundbreaking study of the sustained popularity and changing forms of male drag performance in modern Britain from the 1870s to the 1970s. It provides fresh perspectives on drag and recovers previously neglected episodes in the history of the art form. Dr. Jacob Bloomfield is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Constance and an honorary research fellow at the University of Kent. His research is situated primarily in the fields of cultural history, the history of sexuality, and gender history. Jacob, welcome to New Books and Gender Studies. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So to get us started, um, tell us how this book came about, or as I like to ask folks here, tell me your book's origin story. Uh, Yeah, well, so uh, I guess I've always been interested in uh, gender variants in popular culture. Uh, For example, uh, growing up, I was a massive, massive Prince fan. You know, and so I had, uh, you know, an interest in gender variance via Prince and other forms of popular culture. But really, this project started uh, in my master's year at the University of Edinburgh. And um, I read an article by Charles Upchurch, uh, who's a great um, historian of gender and sexuality and queer history. And um, he uh, he wrote an article about the Bolton and Park case. And the Bolton and Park case is, uh, for those of uh, for audience members who don't know, um, basically what happened uh, there is uh, two uh, female impersonators, as they would have been called then, that is um, drag performers uh, who also uh, cross-dressed in their private lives, uh, they were arrested in 1870 uh, for conspiracy to commit sodomy. And uh, there, the court case that came afterwards sort of rested on uh, the question of whether uh, cross-dressing indicated sexual immorality and specifically sex uh, between or among men. And uh, they were eventually acquitted because the prosecution couldn't definitively prove this link between same-sex desire and, uh, and 
homosexual acts and uh, cross-dressing. And so this sparked my interest in the wider history of male cross-dressing and uh, male gender variants and drag performance. And uh, only over a decade later, <laughs> I've um, uh, written this book. So um, took me a little while uh, from my master's year, but uh, I persevered. So and I'm happy to have released it this year. Yes, and I'm very glad that you wrote it. And something that I'm always curious about when I, I read a, a new book is uh, about how it opens, right? The opening of a book. And I found yours fascinating. So would you mind sharing a little bit about that story with us and telling us a little bit uh, also about Lord Chamberlain's files? Why did you decide to open the book with uh, uh, Mr. Ronald John Hill's 1958 visit to the We're No Ladies Mail Review? Yes, thank you for asking that question. So uh, I open the book with a vignette um, about... uh, an official in the Lord Chamberlain's office. Lord Chamberlain's office was basically a Britain state theater censor between 1737 and 1968. And uh, Secretary Hill, who's an employee of the Lord Chamberlain's office, uh, attends this all-male show, this drag show called We Are No Ladies. Um, I think I said it in 1958, this is. And um, I believe October 1958, I'd have to go back. But anyway, um, so the show's in, it's in Notting Hill. And um, he he is there, Secretary Hill, uh, because he's heard that the uh, performers in the show have been going off the licensed script, or they haven't been adhering to the licensed licensed script. You had to, if you wanted to perform... Uh, play for the public in Britain during this time, you had to submit your your script to the Lord Chamberlain's office, and they would license your play uh, based on the script, but you couldn't uh, go off script. You had to adhere to the licensed script. Um, and uh, the Lord Chamberlain's office had been getting complaints that uh, obscene, unlicensed material was being performed there. Uh, So I open with that vignette, uh, not because I think We Are No Ladies is a landmark uh, in theatrical history. Uh, It's sort of a, it was sort of a silly lowbrow drag show. Um, But um, I think it's a case study that reveals the myriad of ways in which people thought about drag then. So uh, some people wrote into the Lord Chamberlain's office uh, saying this show is homosexual filth. Um, Secretary Hill himself uh, wasn't so enamored with this show, but he ultimately let the show continue because he said, you know, drag is a theatrical tradition in Britain. We can't stamp it out from the stage. It's as old as the stage, is what he says. Um, he mentions that the show is very well dressed. Um, so the performers look glamorous, um, and, uh, they, uh, pull off convincing, uh, feminine presentations, he notes. Uh, he notes that, uh, many people in the audience are so-called respectable-looking people who attend with, quote, wives and girlfriends. Um, 
And uh, so I think uh, this show sort of demonstrates all the different ways in which people were thinking about drag all the t- at the time, the uh, different ways in which drag was perceived. It could be perceived as, uh, as a time-honored tradition uh, in theater. It could be perceived as homosexual filth. It could be perceived uh, as um, glamorous performance. Uh, it could be perceived as just kind of fun light entertainment. Um, So I think this case study is quite revealing because it sort of uh, highlights all the different ways people thought about drag. And then I sort of go into those different uh, perceptions of drag throughout the book. Yes. And it's, it's as I said, it's a great opening. Thank you. But as you write here, uh, quote, so many meanings have been and continue to be attached to drag an objective sense of what constitutes drag can be elusive. I definitely agree with that. But to write a book that has drag on the title, you had to come up with some sort of working definition. So how are you defining and using uh, the term drag here? Yeah, thank you for your question. I mean, uh, I've thought about this a lot. My thesis was actually called... uh, male cross-dressing performance in Britain. Um, And so I could have called it male cross-dressing performance, of course, using the term male can maybe bring up its own issues. Um, But um, I think saying drag kind of speaks to the cultural moment we're in now and gives it uh, some relevance uh, for today's readers. So... Um, I wanted to uh, use the term drag in the title and go into what drag means. So uh, historically, traditionally, um, drag can generally be described as men dressing as women, women dressing as men for the purpose of performance. Um, But it's also uh, another definition, which I use in the book and which I think is relevant historically and today, is drag is a kind of performance that comments on gender, even if gender isn't the only theme. And I think even more avant-garde forms of drag that you see today uh, still constitute a commentary on gender. They can, uh, it can comment on a myriad of other things, drag can, but um, I still feel that the commentary on gender has been and still is a key part of drag performance. And uh, I think, you know, you one could pick holes in my definition and maybe some people will uh, come out but uh, and do that and I'm fine uh, with you know people picking my definition apart but uh, I do think it is good for scholars to come up with a concise memorable definition for terms like drag. Yes, uh, and I appreciate that. Would you mind also talking a little bit, and that's something that you do, that, uh, you know, as as I mentioned to you off the record, I want to uh, use this in my, my teaching, your book and my teaching as well. I appreciate you talking a little bit about the sort of the meaning and the evolution of the term. There's a lot of confusion out there. Uh, I believe, uh, at least I believe it doesn't mean dress as a girl, right? No. 
So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what, what the term um, means and sort of like historical meaning and, and how the term evolved in the time period that you're covering here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so uh, the term drag, uh, meaning cross-dressing, uh, first becomes popularized with an 1870 article in Reynolds's newspaper. That's the first time that the term drag, meaning cross-dressing, appears uh, in published form. Um, and uh, it's actually in an article on the Bolton and Park case, which I just mentioned uh Bolton and Park, uh, in the court case, these uh, private correspondence um, written by Bolton and Park and um, uh, also uh, from others to Bolton and Park emerged. And uh, Ernest Bolton would, for instance, use the term drag to mean uh, cross-dressing. Um, so uh, so the, fir- the term first becomes popularized in the mainstream uh, in 1870, and that's part of the reason why um, this book is an analysis of drag between 1870 and 1970, because I think 1870 is an important uh, kind of cultural moment um, or, if it, or a, a kind of key historical moment. Um, and one of the ways in which it's a key historical moment is because you have the popularization of the term drag itself. And drag comes from, uh, like a lot of etymology, it's uh, not a very satisfying story, but basically it comes from the drag of a gown um, on the ground. Um, so it's not for instance, a reference to dressed as a girl in uh, the Elizabethan theater um, drag uh, is a more uh, modern term. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit tired of telling people that I don't know where the dress as a girl thing came about, but it, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. So I, I loved, you know, seeing uh, your discussion here of the, you know, history of the term and, and all that. I find with, uh, I'm not a linguist or anything, um, and I do cite two sources, for instance, one being uh, Lawrence Sinelik, who wrote a towering book on cross-dressing performance uh, called The Changing Room. Um, but um, So I'm not a, a linguist, but I do feel like oftentimes if uh, someone talks about uh, the history of a word or a phrase and the story or the background of that word or phrase is quite neat then usually there's something i find it suspicious if it's kind of a neat story attached to that phrase or word oftentimes etymology is quite messy and unsatisfying so i find the messy and unsatisfying stories of uh, related to etymology to be much more plausible most of the time Yes, I, I definitely agree with you. And you started touching uh, on my next question. So uh, I was about to ask you about the time period covered there. So you told us a little bit about why you decided to start in the 1870s. But uh, how and why did you decide on this particular time frame, this particular 100 years or so from 1870s to 1970s? Uh, yeah, thank you for your question. Um, so... I could have gone with uh, a myriad of um, kind of time frames for the 
book, for instance, I could have started in the Elizabethan and Jacobian theater with the boy players, but um, I kind of wanted to talk about uh, where our present day idea of drag emerged and i think that kind of starts in the 1870s or the second half of the victorian period um so for instance you have the popular popularization of the term drag um you have uh new uh sexual theories and what would eventually become uh, sexology sexual science that starts to pathologize uh, gender variance and cross-dressing, for example. Um, so you have these new theories, uh, both you know philosophical and scientific, that say you know if you see a man wearing a dress, it's not merely just superficially a man wearing a dress. There's something deeper behind that. It indicates something about this person's persona and private life, etc. Um, you also have theater becoming kind of the dominant cultural form uh, in Britain um, during the second half of the Victorian period. And one of the big arguments of the book is that uh, drag is very much at the heart of popular culture. And, uh, you know, I'm assuming a lot of the people reading my book will be people who like drag, but my hope is that even if you think drag is some sort of niche, silly subject, you'd still get a lot, a lot out of my book because I'm trying to tell a story of you know, popular culture, gender, and sexuality more widely through a through a study of drag. And then um, I. Uh, I stop in 1970, not because nothing interesting happens after 1970, but, you know, lots of interesting drag history happens after 1970. But I think that sort of is when the art form takes a turn. So uh, it kind of, you have, from around 1970, you have uh purer forms of drag being more overtly claimed by gay culture and gay politics. For instance, you have the uh, radical drag contingent of the GLF in Britain using drag in protests and also uh, forming a commune in uh, Notting Hill uh, based around this idea of radical drag um, and even kind of not so political performance in pubs, etc., becomes uh, kind of more overtly uh, gay, basically. <laughs> um, and um, so you have that. And then you have less pure forms of drag percolating in, around popular culture. So, for instance, um, uh, you have uh, pop stars and rock stars presenting themselves in sort of drag-adjacent modes, Um that's often linked to kind of the, I guess, powder keg moment that people often point to is um, Mick Jagger in a Rolling Stones performance and Hyde Park after the death of Brian Jones. Um, it, he wears, I think it's pronounced a fustanella. It's a Greek sort of cassock type uh, thing, but it's interpreted as being a frock, um, and he's also wearing makeup and stuff as well. Um, so kind of relevant because a new Rolling Stones album is out, so they can thank me for their spike in sales after this comes <laughs> out. Um, 
so the and that Rolling Stones concert I might have mentioned it is in 1969. So I'm not. So I sort of end in 1970 because I think that's sort of a definitive break uh, from the type of drag I'm talking about, which is a which is a mass cultural form um, that people up and down the country were seeing people of all sorts of different classes, people of all sorts of different cultural tastes. And that doesn't necessarily disappear after 1970, but I feel like 1970 is where drag takes a turn to the extent that, you know, the story I'm trying to tell um, is maybe less uh, relevant let's say, uh, from 1970, or less pertinent, or, uh, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Yeah, no, I think it makes perfect sense. So as a historian, that's something that I appreciate in your book is how you're showing here how controversies and anxieties about drag are culturally and historically specific. And I'm, I'm just quoting you here make sure that I am not plagiarizing. They defy categorizations that mark prominent present-day cultural understandings. So I've looked at drag histories in other parts uh, of the world, and I do agree with you uh, on that. So I just wanted you to talk a little bit about this importance of placing drag performances of the past in their specific historical contexts. Because I think sometimes we you know, like to look at the past to talk about the present? Um, yeah, so uh, I'm uh, trying not to, in this um, analysis of historical drag, I'm trying not to essentialize drag as, for instance, a queer art form. Of course, drag has held fascination for same-sex desiring and gender non-conforming uh, audiences and practitioners, so I'm not trying to deny that history, but um, when I wrote the book, I was careful not to essentialize drag as uh, meaning one thing, i.e. homosexuality or sexuality in general, um, because it was a mass cultural form and um the audiences who were watching drag and the performers who were doing drag didn't essentialize drag as meaning uh, one thing. And that's a main argument in the book because drag was a mass cultural form. Uh, It spoke to uh, a myriad of concerns people had. It was very, drag was a very adaptable and protean in terms of uh, kind of the type of concerns it spoke to. For instance, I talk about um, the performances of Arthur Lucan, who played a character named Old Mother Riley. Um, And uh, Arthur Lucan's heyday was basically the 1930s through uh, the mid-1950s. He actually died 
backstage um, waiting in the wings to go on stage in the clothes and makeup of old Mother Riley. And it was quite fitting because he was very devoted to this character to the extent that he um, showed up to radio performances in the full costume of old Mother Riley and uh, freaked out co-stars like Bela Lugosi by, uh, you know, greeting them as old Mother Riley and not Arthur Lucan. But uh, anyway, um, Arthur Lucan was uh, seen as, uh, his audience was seen as working class. Uh, He appealed to people in the provinces and the suburbs and industrial cities. Uh, He wasn't popular in the West End. Even most of his films didn't uh, premiere, didn't show up in the West End when they were released. Um, And he spoke to working class concerns. He knew his audience. uh, And, uh, you know, Old Mother Riley was a dame character. uh, So that's an old woman played by a man. Um, and uh, the dame today is mostly seen as a slapstick, almost sort of clownish figure. And uh, Old Mother Riley, the comedy in Old Mother Riley's uh, stage shows and films, you know, was slapstick performance. But uh, he also, uh, the Old Mother Riley um, stage shows and uh, and films and radio performances and gramophone records. He had a whole media empire. Uh, also spoke to deeper working class concerns. For instance, in the film Old Mother Riley MP, uh, Old Mother Riley runs to be a member of parliament against her former boss. And this former boss is also uh, a, a landlord, by the way, so doubly an enemy of the working class. And Old Mother Riley runs and wins on a platform of universal employment, uh, for example, and preserving yes. public parks. So, and, you know, maybe you could interpret in Old Mother Riley performances some form of some sexual undertones, maybe, but, um, you know, Mainly people associated Old Mother Riley with working class culture, uh, working class uh, concerns, family entertainment, things of that nature that didn't have anything to do directly, at least, with sexuality. And, um, you know, so, yes, I think uh, a history of drag, if you tell a history of drag, it is a sexual history, but there's also a myriad of other issues that drag brings up, uh, such as, you know, convalescence after the world wars, which I discuss, such as working class culture, as I said, uh, time-worn theatrical tradition, etc. So one of the things that I liked the most in this podcast is to be able to chat with other uh, folks about their research process. And I am obsessed with your book's photos. I also love some of the reader's letters that you um, quote here. Uh, Tell us a bit about your research process. How or where did you find the sources and what kinds of sources helped you tell the story? Uh, Yeah, thank you for your question. Um, of course, I looked at uh, lots of newspapers, uh, arts criticism in the press, 
Um, and that's basically because a lot of the performances I discussed were never filmed. And one of the few ways in which they were recorded was through reviews in the press. So that was obviously um, very helpful. Another great um, boon for my project was the uh, Lord Chamberlain's plays in the British Library. And um, the so obviously I'm not a big fan of theater censorship and I don't <laughs> I'm glad that theater censorship in Britain or the state regime of theater censorship ended in 1968 so let me just make that clear but uh, a silver lining of the state regime of theater censorship is that you can go to the British Library and find uh, entire play scripts um, because these, as I mentioned, these scripts were submitted to the Lord Chamberlain's office uh, in order to be licensed. And, um, you know, you can also find uh, what the Lord Chamberlain's office found controversial about certain plays. And of course, it's important to um, acknowledge that the Lord Chamberlain's office was not representative of the British public. So you can't necessarily say oh well the lord chamberlain's office found such and such a topic controversial and therefore it was controversial amongst the wider population but um the lord through looking at the lord chamberlain's plays you can see you know people would write into the lord chamberlain's office uh, complaining about certain performances as i mentioned again maybe these people were not representative of the wider population but you do get a sense of what you know some potentially average theater goers thought about certain plays um and uh you get a sense of what the police might have thought because sometimes the lord chamberlain's office would send the police uh to uh plays to observe them you get a sense of what the courts Thought because the Lord Chamberlain's office was dependent on the police and the courts to prosecute um, producers, uh, uh, performers, etc., who were seen to be uh, violating theater censorship laws. Um, so, and then also you do get uh, people engaging in the debate over theater censorship as a whole. Um, and giving their opinion on what the Lord Chamberlain's office is doing. So, you know, again, it's important not to make kind of broad claims about what the wider public thought uh, based on what you read in the Lord Chamberlain's plays, but you do get a good sense of what a variety of parties uh, thought about certain performances. Um I also thought it was important to talk about the Lord Chamberlain's office because they arguably had the most uh, direct control over drag performance out of kind of any uh, agent in uh, in Britain. Um, they had the most direct control over the regulation of drag performance. So I do think, uh, again, even though you can't necessarily extrapolate what everyone in Britain was thinking about drag based on what the Lord Chamberlain's office thinks. Uh, they are very important uh, in terms of where drag fit legally um, and uh, kind of stories of state regulation of drag. 
yeah, uh, again, looking at the, the sources you use, it, it was very inspiring. And it's also always very tricky, right, that these mechanisms of policing, of repression, yield amazing source bases. It's always tricky to deal with that. Um, I, I still want some time to ask you about your new project that I'm fascinated with. But to start closing our interview, I wanted you to talk uh, about the the current, as you, you mentioned here, conspicuousness of drag and the sub, subsequent backlashes that we're dealing with today. Um, I found it interesting and um, agreed, again, looking at this this history in other contexts, uh, that this claim that only now drag has gone mainstream isn't necessarily accurate. So I want you to talk a little bit about that. But also if you draw any parallels between the controversies and anxieties of the past to the ones that we're dealing with today. Uh, yeah, thank you uh, for asking that. So... I actually wrote an article in The Telegraph um, about this issue, uh, that issue being the present-day culture wars over drag performance. Um, And it's sort of interesting, when I first started the PhD thesis, um, I kind of felt like I was talking to supporters of drag. And uh, the, the point of my book isn't to be a, as I might term it a well actually guy you know what i mean um the point of the book isn't to be contrarian and to tell people they're wrong about what they think about drag um uh because you know uh, if somebody says i connect drag with queer culture um or i associate drag with queer culture i don't think they're wrong um but what i am trying to do is contextualize what people think about drag currently so i say to those people okay well um you know my book uh will illuminate how drag and queer culture came to be associated so um uh, for both practitioners and observers for example um so uh so my the aim of my book is to uh put these our modern ideas of drag into a historical context and not to tell people they're wrong about what they think about drag because I don't think they are. Um, So when I first started, I kind of thought, okay, I'm contextualizing what drag supporters think about drag currently. So for instance, there's this idea that drag has become more globally homogenous based uh, because of RuPaul's Drag Race today. And, you know, I think there is a lot to that argument, but also I say, well, in the 19th century and 20th century, there were global networks of drag too. You had drag performers moving across the Atlantic in both directions, going all around Europe uh, and North America and Australia, for example, um, performing their drag shows. You had uh plays involving drag that were popular on both sides of the Atlantic. So there was a global network of drag to point to in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, So I thought I was sort of speaking to drag supporters and offering historical context to what they thought about drag. Now I feel like I'm sort of with the current day, with the present day culture war over drag, I sort of feel like I'm talking to drag the opposition um, or drag detractors. 
uh, and I'm not sure whether they'll buy my book <laughs> necessarily. Um, but, um, you know, my Telegraph article uh, is sort of speaking to uh, the uh, socially conservative uh, detractors of drag or the con socially conservative opposition to drag saying, hey, you know, there's actually a long tradition of people who were socially conservative embracing drag. There's a tradition of drag actually appealing to conservative tastes and conservative mores. And, um, you know, a big argument in my book is that uh, drag was at the heart of British popular culture in the 19th and 20th centuries. You know, when radio first emerged, you have drag on the radio from the very beginning in the 1920s and 1930s, for example. Uh, when television first emerges, you have drag on television. Uh, the drag ventriloquist uh, Bobby Kimber was on television in the late 1930s. Um, and of course, later on, you have Danny LaRue, who's a ubiquitous presence on television as well as on stage. So it's interesting that uh, conservatives who, you know, claim to venerate British culture and British tradition are turning their backs on this, <laughs> on this, uh, you know, cultural tradition. And uh, uh, in a way now, I feel like the book is speaking to those people a little bit. But like I said, I'm not sure if they'll buy the book. Probably you're more likely to buy the book if you like drag. But uh, I'll say right here, if you like drag, buy the book. If you hate drag, buy the book. Uh, if you're ambivalent towards drag, buy the book. I think uh, all those groups of people will find something to like. Yes, they will. And as I have been telling the folks who are collaborating in my new uh, project that involves drag performers, uh, drag's been here for a long, long time and it ain't going nowhere. So there's no, uh, no use in all this silly backlash now. Yes. And I, I just want to say that I, the book, uh, of course, you know, I enjoy talking about past drag performance, but I uh, well, it's not, you know, meant to be overly nostalgic. I think uh, drag is, drag in the present day is great. Uh, it's obviously adaptable. Uh, it's ever changing. Um, you know, as I said, I still think that the definition of drag as a commentary on gender is still relevant, but maybe that'll change uh, in 10 to 20 years. And I think it's great that all sorts of people are, getting into drag and that uh, what a drag artist is, is basically based on a person's self definition. Um, you know, uh, cis women can be drag queens, uh, cis men can be uh, drag kings. You have uh, non-binary drag artists. So you have, so drag is ever changing and it's uh, getting more and more interesting and um, creative. And so I think uh, the art form has a bright future. Yes, yes. Amen to that. But I don't, I can't let you go without telling us a little bit about your new project that I'm already looking forward to. Uh, thanks. Uh, so the next project uh, is about Little Richard, but oddly, I'm 
for a project about Little Richard, I'm sort of taking Little Richard out of the spotlight. You know, you have the uh, Charles White biography slash autobiography on Little Richard, and you have the recent documentary that came out. So I think uh, there's been, you know, not enough probably, but still a good amount of solid material on Little Richard uh, himself. And I'm sort of moving the spotlight towards how people received Little Richard, the historical reception to Little Richard, uh, amongst various demographics of people, um, white people, queer people, straight people, Europeans, um, non-Europeans, the Black queer community. And um, so I'm looking at the historical reception to Little Richard, and I'm looking at his overall cultural impact and how kind of narratives of Little Richard's life and um, his kind of cultural significance have changed throughout uh, time ever since he first emerged uh, in the mainstream, at least, uh, with the single Tutti Frutti in 1955. As I said, I'm looking forward to that, and I hope when the book's ready, you come back and tell us all about it. Thanks. Jacob, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Okay, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on, and thank you all you listeners out there in Radioland. Yes, thank you all for tuning in to this episode of New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time.